there was a time when uh, the two of us would eat Everest, drink Everest, sleep Everest. Like that had become our mission. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I also kind of, uh, you know, took uh, Tashi seriously is because she started, uh, you know, having dreams about being on the summit of the peak. And when she recalled that, uh, you know, that episode and, and shared it with me, I was like, you know, this might be something more. It's, it's a deeper calling. And I believe that we all have that calling in our lives. Uh, how quickly are we able to uh, understand it and go in that direction is, is a matter of time. Welcome to the Sam Gash podcast. These are conversations with trailblazers, rule breakers and those who pave their own lane and venture boldly into the unknown. By entering this uncharted arena, they inevitably stumble, yet they all display an ability to innovate and contribute, even when the odds are not in their favour. We skip over their highlights reel and go into the guts of who they are and what they believe in. I'm your host, Samantha Gash, and I'm an endurance athlete, a former corporate lawyer and social impact entrepreneur. It is my absolute privilege to create the space for these guests. If you found these conversations to be of value or have any feedback, please subscribe, rate and review, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to this week's episode of the Sam Gash Podcast. This week I have with me Tashi and Nungshi Malik, also known as Tash and Nash. They are the first siblings and twins to climb the seven summits and reach the North and South Pole, which is completing the Adventurous Grand Slam and the Three Poles Challenge. They have won several awards throughout India, including the highest award for women in India. Their experiences go beyond the adventure lens and very much into the social impact space. They're certainly using their passion and love for adventure in the outdoors to try and affect gender equality for women in India, but also globally as well. They also, with very little, meaning negligible adventure racing experience, took part in the world's toughest race in Fiji last year, which is where Mark, my husband, and I met them for the very first time. You know, if you've seen this series, you will be impressed by their ability to defy the odds. Their perseverance, focus, and clear talent in the endurance world is transferable from Everest into Fiji's adventure race. So I hope you love this conversation. We talk about twinship. We talk about crafting goals, dreaming, execution. There's a lot in this conversation. Uh, there was also affected by two storms, both in the Dandong Ranges where I live, but also in India. And so we have pursued it like an adventure race, crafting this conversation and bringing it to you. So I hope you love it. So I think it's pretty, um, well, what I love is that you both were the first people that Mark and I met uh, in Fiji for Eco Challenge. I know, we were kind of pre-race, we were feeling the nerves, and you actually told me uh, that you had just gotten your bike a couple of weeks ago, and I remember my reaction going, how do they expect to be able to do a really hardcore adventure race having only been on their bike for a couple of weeks? Uh (laughs) So let's talk about Eco Challenge. Like, what did you know about it um, when you signed up and applied and kind of got into it? What was your training like? And I guess a little bit about the race itself. Uh, You know, well, honestly, like in the months prior to the race, we had remained relatively sedentary. And uh, when the offer came, we were pretty unprepared. Uh, you know, we, we, we didn't know what adventure racing was. And we didn't even go into eco uh, knowing the entire nature of what this race entails. 
Um, and you're right. I mean, you know, we were uh, quite, uh, you know, novice and we didn't mind uh, sharing little details about how we received a bike two weeks before even, uh, you know, coming to Eco uh, and, you know, what the repercussions and the consequences were going to be like. But uh, clearly we had no idea the scale and magnitude of the Eco race. And uh, when we first uh, reached Fiji and saw, you know, all these different teams from around the world and we saw, you know, got an exposure to their equipments and personal gear and what they were, you know, how they were training and preparing for it. Uh, the two of us started to think that this is now becoming real. At first, we thought, you know, we go, we go and see a new country, Fiji. That'll be fun and nice. And uh, you know, first the, the race before it begins, you know, we might it might be an imminent failure. We may come out and camp one. But our intent was not to, uh, you know, either finish or complete the race. Our thing was to understand what adventure racing was all about. We had zero, zero knowledge about adventure racing. And honestly, even the various dis- disciplines involved, we knew that a lot of it was going to be in the water which again is our weakest spot. So uh, the two of us, even though we were stoked about uh, embarking on a new expedition, because what had happened is like, you know, people knew us as uh, mountaineers, clearly. And uh, for us in the adventure world, there's far more dynamics and, and range of activities that one can do. So we wanted to endure eco-challenge from that perspective of, you know, coming out of a comfort zone and raising a benchmark a little higher uh, than what it was. And, uh, and kind of take that as a message for even the girls and uh, women back home because adventure racing is still not hyped in our country and we wanted to see where uh, this love affair could take us uh, with adventure racing. Yeah, so it, it's honestly, we had zero idea, but now having done adventure racing once, I think we have a better understanding of what to expect. And not necessarily that we'll be better prepared. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I... I mean, the knowledge that you have done it, um, it's like when you run your first marathon. You have no idea what it's going to feel like the first time. Right. If you get through it, the next time is about how do I increase um, my performance and become more efficient. And I think it's bridging the gap of what you, from what you don't know to what you do know, you know, that's the really kind of pivotal part. I mean, I just love that you guys do nothing in half. You, you, do, you do the seven summits, you do the world's toughest adventure race. It's a, there's a very compelling nature, which, I, which is why I think, um, so many people were drawn to you watching it. Yeah, you know, you got to see, you know, the twin banter. You you don't put out perfection, um, but there is something about this unwavering focus that you've obviously experienced in other areas of your life yeah. that really connects to the adventure racing lens. Because I would say most people who have had the de- degree of experience, or should I say, the lack of experience that you two had, yeah. wouldn't have made it. Like, what do you think it is about? the two of you and your team that were able to get through that experience? Oh, we were uh, highly resilient folks, all, all four of us. Uh, you know, we were mountaineers, uh, Brandon, Praveen, the two of us. Uh, we are climbers and we've done much of our training in, in the Himalayas, uh, you know, growing up. And uh, for us, you know, resilience has been our number one thing uh, before we embark on such an expedition. But one of the key things that really worked for all four of us was communication. We never let communication fail at any point, uh, and we tried to like be as open and uh, you know honest about uh, our feelings. Um, and because we were not you know professional adventure racers, I think we didn't even uh, you know go into this with strong opinions or had you know we never spoke about each other. We never uh, accused somebody of doing something wrong or you know uh, spoke of 
the things that could have been right or done properly because we were also, uh, you know, we were like uh, greenhorns, vegetarians, and we had very limited, uh, you know, perceptions about each other. And uh, we tried to keep it as open and honest. And you know, the trust factor was was the key, uh, you know, the thing that kept us. But there was, but there was definitely something beyond our physical ability that was driving us. Honestly, as a team, I think. we are always professional enough to yeah. ensure that you know we will do the best we can to survive and to help each other survive so one thing that we both have learned from our various adventures is that it's not just important to you know reach the summit of a mountain you also need to be back safe and alive and that's what i think for our team that was kind of crucial because we knew we wanted to get headlong into this adventure but at the same time make sure that we are safe and we don't harm each other uh, mentally or physically or emotionally you know and uh, I guess uh, perseverance holds the key for us as an individual, and pushing has always been uh, at least my strength. So on this race, there were moments where I couldn't even feel my tongue, you know. And even now, when I try to recollect some of the moments from the race, I'm actually unable to because I think I was semi-conscious. Uh, <laughs> like now, people tell us that there were points where we looked like zombies and we had nothing left in us, but there was obviously something supernatural, like something beyond that was guiding us to the finish line for sure. So, oh, I, I mean, the zombie is the perfect way of describing it because our team refers to, oh, there's another zombie team. And I mean, we're probably zombies as we're saying it, but, you know, the head is cocked. There's like a glazed expression. People aren't fully with it, which is also quite remarkable that people can be at like 50% their normal faculties, mm-hmm. but they can keep moving forward. One really clear thing about your team mm-hmm. is that you didn't have big egos going into it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, indicated that you respected the undertaking so much mm-hmm. that even though you had been adventurers in other lenses yeah. you you kind of took a day at a time and you didn't let ego get in the way which i would say for a lot of novice teams yeah. they would have such an experience with adventure that they wouldn't even know to be scared <laughs> that's that's the right way to describe it yeah none of us did we never raced or worked together earlier and there was serious intercultural differences with you know Brandon coming from the United States and representing team India uh looking back now we can proudly say that we were one of the most cohesive teams despite uh, all of us coming for the first time uh, before the race um and you know like you mentioned right uh it was because we didn't have egos strong egos going into this it was a more enjoyable experience rather than pointing a finger at somebody and saying that this is you're the reason why we're not progressing. How did you overcome cultural differences out there? Hmm. It was, you know, uh, so Tash and I have had, uh, you know, fairly a good amount of experience, you know, traveling the world with different communities and part of our peace building and conflict resolution studies in the US uh, did expose us to the various challenges and differences, uh, you know, with people who come from uh, various uh, backgrounds. So for us, even though we were mindful of that, we were uh, also aware that our fourth member, Pradeep, who couldn't speak English as well as he's a local mountain lad, uh, you know, for one was obviously making sure that all of us understand each other, which was uh, a bit of a bummer because you know, the Pradeep talking broken English and Brandon trying to make sense of it. I think we had we all had our own interpretations of uh, you know each other and what we were trying to say. but uh, we you know we kind of used like different we had different mantras for all of this right where where you 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 probably masking some of those uh, feelings emotions something that is not appropriate um with a, with a positive 
frame of mind. And it's very difficult initially if you don't understand uh, what these differences can do to you. But um, over time, we've learned the art of negating some of that by just putting a, a bright face on and, uh, and positivity around us. And what we do believe that everything we express uh, sends a message. Everything we say uh, tells something about us. So once the, the word is out of our mouth, we know that <laughs> it will make you know a difference in the way that people perceive it. So we are very cautious about what we say, when we say, and how we say it. Uh, adventure sort of uh, builds that strength and character in all of us, right? Like because we were also passionate about adventure and outdoors, it was easier to communicate with one another. It's like a common language. So I would say, yeah, going into this, we really didn't see where, what, how the team was made. It was more like we knew this is the team we wanted, and we went headlong with uh, with that. So. Yeah. I love that. I can love that idea that like adventure allows you to respect not just nature, but also the people that you choose to share that experience with. And, you know, it, it does take a lot of effort to not just say how you're feeling, because in, in adventure racing, for those who are listening and, and haven't been exposed to it, you are really, you're brought to your very your edge. Um, you're sleep deprived, you know, <laughs> so you're incredibly exhausted and people typically um, have less um, barriers from like their feelings to the verbalization of those feelings. Yeah. So for the fact that the two of you who obviously you were, you were a team going into it and then you were in another team, which was, you know, the four of you, mm-hmm. for you to be able to go, okay, I might be feeling frustrated right now. I might be feeling exhausted, but to not say what's the first thing out of your, of your mouth mm-hmm. on the basis that you know that it could create harm to the team okay. is incredible self-awareness. What was their most challenging moment for you out on the course? I would say the water leg. Like, um, so initially, like I said, you know, the race started with this whole paddle boat section and, uh, I mean, uh, the Damakao section. And then we went out in the ocean. Uh, like we said, you know, initially, water has been our biggest fear. And uh, definitely the first leg of the race itself freaked us out. Um, and having not paddled in life before, like this was the first time we were actually going <laughs> to the ocean. And we were, I'm, kidding, I'm not kidding, Samantha, we were freaking out of the world. Like we were paddling and we knew we had to get to the other end, to the other checkpoint. But our mind was, how do we do this thing? Like, how can we like keep paddling nonstop for whatever hours? Because we had never done it. Yet there was something, you know, mentally pushing us to be able to do so. Um, so initially, I think, yeah, it started out with a water leg and that's been a biggest fear. But Eventually, during the race, I would say, uh, yeah, like I would say water sections for the two of us. It was quite a bummer. Um, <laughs> there was so much water. I mean, the first three days would have been water for you for you girls. Um, and, I mean, it was, we're okay with the water. It's not our strongest leg, but wow. it was overwhelming for us as well. And I just remember my upper body being so, like, I was I couldn't wait to use my feet. I was like, put me on a bike, put me like on the trekking legs. You know, who was navigating on the water? Uh, well, it was uh, partly me and Brandon uh, while uh, Praveen was doing the steering. So yeah, the navigation, uh, me and Brandon did most of it on the ocean leg and the water legs. And on land, it was Praveen and um, me and Brandon. And, and Tashi had a little bit of a road. You put me out in the outrigger. Like, she's just like, Tashi, you go to the side and you just like paddle, you know. And I'm like, okay, I'm the bait. If the shark comes, he's definitely going to take me. Yeah, um, but so. no, navigation, you know, the hydrographic navigation was the toughest. And when, uh, you know, when we were sailing back from, uh, you know, the camp, uh, the checkpoint three to, uh, you know, the standard paddle boat section, I remember it was pitch dark and there yeah. are no landmarks that are visible. 
So whatever flickering lights you see in the distance, you kind of hope you're going there or you're going to get there, but you're clearly not inching anywhere closer to that. So you drift quite a bit and uh, you follow your instincts. And I don't know how this happened, why it happened, but somehow the choices we made, you know, the gut feeling, it worked in our favor. But yeah. it, could, it could go horribly wrong. So not saying that this is the way to navigate, but uh, for <laughs> us, it clearly helped. And uh, it was one of the most frustrating moments, uh, navigation uh, while on the sea, on the ocean. And we didn't even have map covers. To be yeah, we didn't have map photos. But <laughs> 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 the, the, the I mean, the adventurizing gods wanted you two to finish. What did you take away from that experience? Yeah, for me, I think, you know, we've always believed that our life shrinks or expands in proportion to our courage. Uh, and in the 11 days of the Eco Challenge yeah. race, we definitely expanded our life beyond measure and in many transformative ways. Um, the whole, you know, when you look at uh, the, the community, I mean, it was just so overwhelming to see networks of like-minded people and organizations who seek to make a better world through adventure sports. We took away from the experience of an adventure community that believes in all for one and one for all in our common mission of sports beyond the field to positive social action. And for us, uh, that will be a memory that will stay forever. And for me, that's how I would, you know, I would say that you know, I took away a, a, a community of like-minded adventurers and people who speak the same language as yours. And I would also true. say, like, I don't know, but from Eco Challenge, you know, when you think of ordinary people, right, you tend to think that they believe only in the possible, whereas extraordinary people, you know, visualize not what is possible or, like, probable, but rather what is impossible. And I think by visualizing the impossible, you know, we began to see the possible. Well, I think that's a really great place for us to segue away from, you know, Eco Challenge, the world's toughest race, which is obviously um, what's kind of all over your social media right now. It's, you know, airing as that 10-part series on Amazon Prime. It's epic. For those who haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. But let's now go a bit more about, you know, the two of you, um, where you come from. In fact, where are you right now? So we guys are from this uh, home, to, uh, the beautiful mountain town called Heradun, which is uh, located in the Dune Valley. Uh, and it's at the foothills of the Himalayas, which is nestled below the, the River Ganges on the east and the River Yamun on the west. Uh, so quite an interesting uh, place to be. Yeah, and you guys have had strict lockdown uh, for the last couple of months. Um, mm-hmm. How has it been for, for you and your family? Wow. Yeah, we have been under a lockdown since March. And honestly, this is the longest we've been home. So I'm sure mom and dad and grandma, who's almost 75, they love our company and enjoying it very much. But yeah, Sam, I mean, you know, since you know how much we crave outside, it's kind of been a little rough, you know, um, and not being able to go outside or climb a mountain or go mountain biking. And after having such an intense year last year, this seemed like, oh my gosh, what a bummer, you know. So I think we're learning to cope with the current scenario. And we do know that, you know, I think the circumstances that we've already dealt with uh, during our mountaineering pursuits have sort of sort of helped us now to overcome these challenges. And, uh, you know, we are put, putting our creative uh, lens to picture and doing things that we love. But we are also maintaining a basic level of fitness. And so we do a little bit of workout every day at home. Uh, but yeah, needless to say, it's, it's kind of well, sad. We just limit the fresh air, you know, yeah. like uh, when you in India, it's, it's a sea of humanity. So many people, the moment we step outside our house, despite the lockdown there, you do see people. And, um, it's, you know, it's some places you do 
feel that people need to be a little more careful and behave, uh, but uh, we are no one to tell them what they need to do or not. So, you know, we caught up in this like uh, this dilemma of uh, whether to go out, you know, and risk our life than to stay indoors because a lot of people don't sure wear masks and it uh, it calls for a need of um, urgent action. I mean, you know, India the cases are still rising. Uh, we've surpassed quite a large number. And uh, we live in such close proximity to each other that it is uh, a matter of um, time when we all get to go outside. So I guess, you know, at this point, we are happy to be home. Uh, our mom and dad, obviously, they were at camp, our outdoor leadership school, for about three months. Uh, but uh, the monsoons have changed that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of destruction in our hometown. Yeah. Our camp partly got washed away, which was also, uh, you know, disappointing. Uh, mom and dad had to come home and now we've been together for about a month. How many people are, are, in, are in the house that you're living in? <laughs> Joint family. <laughs> I've, I've seen the photos. I know there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, mom's younger brother just left yesterday with his family to Delhi, uh, but we were about uh, 12 people under one yeah. roof. <laughs> including two dogs and ten chickens. Sorry, three dogs and ten chickens. So <laughs> that's the whole community. <laughs> you know, obviously you're so used to this uh, quite dynamic, adventurous, um, highly mobile and, you know, mm-hmm. what many people would consider a very exciting lifestyle and obviously over the last couple of months it's really been drawn back to basics. Mm-hmm. And, and you've highlighted that you've been able to um, utilise some of the things that you've learned through adventure to manage in this time, what what do you think some of those things are? Yeah, mm, that's an interesting question. Well, I would personally say, um, you know, patience uh, is the number one thing. Like even when you're going out climbing, you know, when you know that you, your goal is the summit, but every step that comes your way is a process and you've got to be patient with that process. And so during that whole experience, we've kind of learned to be patient enough to be able to, you know, take in uh, the challenges as they come, but at the same time, deal them with patience and know that, you know, it's not like a click of a finger that things change. You really have to work your way in to uh, make things a little different. So I would say patience is number one, but also dealing with risks right now, like, you know, with no job, like Nash and I don't have a nine to five job. So, you know, we are constantly on a 24 hour job, just trying to see like, uh, how do we best meet our interests? And, uh, you know, and obviously now that we can't go outside, we have been putting, like I said, the creative mind uh, to projects that we love doing. So online has become our sort of platform where we are doing that. But at the same time, it's kind of stressful, too, because, you know, you don't want to indulge in so much of social media as well, because it takes away a lot of a bulk of your time. At the same time, being mindful that there are a lot of people, obviously, after watching the show, they are, you know, kind of very excited about what's next for the twins. And, you know, we're trying to keep up with that. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's also really, like, I think, you know, uh, in, in, when we're climbing, I mean, there's always, we go with that, uh, mentality of having different plans, you know, there's plan A, plan B, plan C, and uh, it goes on. So even now with our current life scenario, we are actually working on a different, uh, you know, um, domain altogether. We have so many different things that we are currently engaging in. And, uh, it's a matter of time when we put them, uh, you know, implement them and, uh, go forward with our uh, actions. But uh, it's it you know we there are so many things that we take away from the mountains that are very relevant to how we deal with the current pandemic. There's the uns, there's this uncertainty about the future. 
uh, how quickly will things change? Will it ever be the same? Do we have to learn to cope uh, with, you know, the COVID uh, being amidst us? So uh, that to us, like a lot of people can be, you know, uh, can be very daunting and they kind of take a back seat and uh, they tend to, you know, uh, divert their mind to a, a very dark, dark place for us to mentally, emotionally and physically stay on the brighter side of things has become uh, more important than ever before. And so we're paying a lot of like even, you know, focus on doing meditation or yoga and making sure that uh, we are not depressed and we are not sad. We're spending a lot of time on personal care. Uh, we're trying and doing that with our friends around us. You know, there are a lot of people that we reach out to uh, via in, you know emails and calls uh, to make sure that they are upbeat and we kind of help rev them up. So we're doing a little bit of our, you know, a bit to kind of change the way people think about what's going to happen. You know, I, I love that. And, and I can personally say I know that you've done that because you've done that with me. You've stayed in touch with me and, and checked on me and just kind of kept the lines of communication open. Mm. Uh, and I think that's beautiful because, you know, um, we live so far apart and sometimes the distance seems even greater now because you, you actually can't even just jump on a plane. But in many respects, it's made people up the ante in how they choose to stay in touch with people. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do love that idea that when you're on the mountains, for the pure sake of survival, you need to keep light and you need to keep focused on what always is the next best plan based mm -hmm. on what is the set of circumstances that are now in front of you. So your plan A, plan A might be out the window because there's a storm coming in or plan B might be out the mm -hmm. window because there's, you know, a bunch of climbers up ahead of you and you've got to change your pace and you've got to modify your mm -hmm. oxygen levels, like all these things, and yeah. you are now transposing that mindset into a situation that you didn't ask for, i.e. a global pandemic, but you right. can utilise those skill sets. And that's where adventure mm -hmm. um, and people's exposure to it can help you in, in just everyday life. And I, I think that's really powerful. So let's use that and then go into, you know, let's go back to the beginning because I think in 2013 to 2015, you guys did the Adventurers Grand Slam, um, which for those who don't know, they, they climbed um, the seven summits as well as doing the South and the North Pole. Um, and it's, I mean, it's monumental. You were at the age of 21 and I, I just need to, I want to dissect the questions of, of how do you know, you obviously didn't just decide at the age of the 21. I'm sure there was a build-in to it. At what point did you start to think, one, climbing was something that you wanted to do in a professional sense and, two, believe that your capabilities would allow you to do something that is, you know, at, at the top of the top of what someone would do in climbing? Well, I guess, you know, there are honestly, there are like series of events that sort of led us to climb the seven summits, you know, as kids, I don't think Nash and I or even our parents have the slightest idea that we were going to be mountaineers. And, you know, our biggest treasure in life is these extreme range of experiences that life gave us. You know, we had a very uh, nomadic life growing up due to our dad's military profession. And we lived in almost every type of geographical sort of location, whether it was deserts, mountains, you know, by the sea or even high altitudes. But the love for outdoors and love for new people and places was a natural inheritance for the two of us. And the other strong attributes, obviously, of the military life that equally shaped us were, you know, discipline, risk taking and a strong sense of, uh, I would say, service and pride. So we feel blessed to have been, you know, raised in a value based environment. 
And I remember from an early age at school, as young girls, you know, we were accomplished uh, sportswomen, excelling at hockey, basketball, you know, we played badminton and also athletics. So at one point, honestly, we even considered pursuing hockey as a career um, because we have always loved the outdoors and adventures. But honestly, we didn't even consider mountaineering sort of until much later uh, because we had a lot of interests. We loved to dance and we had an interest in peace work and journalism. And then we only knew that we wanted to live life 100% with uh, full of intensity and vigor. Uh, and we knew that could only happen if we followed our passion. So I remember we were barely 18 years of age. Um, and our dad actually, uh, you know, had applied on our behalf uh, to a mountaineering institute here in India. And he just said, you know, that by the time you girls are figuring out what you want to do after high school, why don't you go for a basic course in mountaineering, you know, because uh, the more you get out of your comfort zone, you'll probably learn much more about yourselves, like the hidden part of yourself. <laughs> so initially, I looked at Nash and Nash looked at me and we were kind of confused. We're like, wait, what is mountaineering all about? Like, why are we going to kill ourselves out in the mountains? Or we didn't even understand the background of like mountaineering because the only thing, the only time we ever heard mountaineering was, you know, with the army people or the the defense, uh, you know, people here in India. So we thought it was kind of rough to like undertake such a challenge. Uh, but because it was the two of us, you know, we knew that uh, we have each other's company and we can undertake any challenge that sort of comes our way. And that was the first ever exposure we had to like a, uh, you know, a basic mountaineering course that actually changed our lives forever. Because yeah. I think for the first time, Nash and I realized that, you know, being girls, we were capable of so much more, like accomplishing so much more. And I remember a time like when we were in the institute training for the mountaineering, uh, you know, scene, it was kind of, it was kind of interesting to see how there were very few girls. I think we were barely eight or nine girls and there were about 50 plus boys. So in the beginning, we thought, well, I think we are in the wrong place because, you know, we don't really have that uh, neutral uh, gender scenario where you feel more confident and comfortable of your presence. So we were kind of trying to take a step back. But then, you know, our instructors were kind of like, you know, you're the girls who are made of steel and you're pretty strong in the mountains and you guys should continue the legacy of climbing, you know, like you should become mountaineers. And I think that was the point where Nash and I started feeling more confident about who we were and ourselves and our physical capacity, because I know that we would beat half the boys in the course. And that made us feel like, wow, we could do this, you know. And that sort of helped us cement a belief in ourselves that as girls, we can accomplish uh, any mountaineering feat. It's, you know, we've realized that mountains don't discriminate based on gender. And that was a turning point for the two of us when we came back home saying that we wanted to, uh, you know, uh, climb a peak or climb, keep climbing for the rest of our life because it was a very transformational sort of experience. Um, and while we climbed Everest in 2013, purely for fulfilling a personal mountaineering dream, our quest for the seven summits actually was inspired by the cause of the Indian girl child, which we named mm -hmm. 247, uh, which was two girls for the seven summits. And then having successfully completed it in two years and with inspired, uh, you know, global adulation for our cause, our dream only grew bigger. Uh, so even post mission 247, we embarked on another mission, which was Uchayo Seage, which in Hindi means beyond height. Uh, that was to become the world's first siblings to complete the Explorer's Grand Slam. And so, yeah, I think it was a series of events that led to us uh, actually experimenting with uh, with mountaineering. But we've realized that uh, it has been a great journey and we've learned some great lessons from the mountains. We are forever grateful. I think we, you know, view our relationship with the mountains with a great sense of humility. And 
uh, as far as I know, like the two of us have, you know, bonded stronger in these pursuits and uh, it's been uh, a beautiful journey to be able to go on such missions and see the bright and the bad side of it, to be honest. You're clearly grateful for the experiences that you've had in the mountains, but what makes it that much more impactful is that you have chosen to use experiences where you have felt empowered and strong and then connected it to raising attention to the plight of the girl child in India. And I I really want to explore um, how you have used adventure and your experiences for social change. But before we go into that, can we just quickly discuss base camp? I have always had a fascination about it. What was it like and what was, you know, your biggest takeaway from it? Uh, while we were at the base camp, you know, we were uh, we were uh, interacting with a lot of climbers from around the world who obviously were talking about the seven summits. And, uh, you know, it kind of piqued our curiosity about what these might be. And uh, in order to follow our passion to the hill, raise awareness about the cause that we were extremely passionate about we said there's no better way but to embark on the seven summit journey to prove number one that the girls are strong and two that we are on a journey of self-exploration self um, you know belief and that kind of uh, took on from there so our our uh, seven summit mission was um, uh, you know kind of born on the base camp of Everest and uh, we never looked back since <laughs> The place to where all wonderful ideas should grow, where there's limited oxygen at your disposal. <laughs> as a teenager, as you are dreaming and scheming of getting up to Everest, what was your family's reaction? Uh, yeah, so, you know, although, like like I mentioned earlier, mom, mom is a Gorkha, right, with roots in the mountainous Nepal. Uh, yeah. Although she's a typical Indian mother as well, <laughs> she had dreams of us getting into cushy, well-paid jobs. You know, get married and raise kids. Um, so she was like, she would be the last person uh, to uh, you know approve of our climbing missions and go on such dangerous <laughs> climbs around the world. Um, but when we you know came home after our first uh, big summit uh, in the Indian Himalayas, uh, we uh, you know. Uh, told mom about uh, our experience and our desire to climb Everest and uh, she nearly fainted uh, when we first told her our intention she said over my dead body um, you know there you go get out of the house so for us the the biggest mountain for the next three years became you know getting mom to agree to our mission Uh, and over time we persevered and finally won had it had it not been for dad we wouldn't have been able to convince mom but it took us a long time and uh, obviously, even though mom is, uh, you know, very proud and happy about our achievements, she's constantly urging us, you know, this is enough and it is a very worried soul. <laughs> so as a policy, you know, I recollect uh, the three of us, dad, me and my sister never really shared the likely dangers of our expeditions with her. She has no clue what happens on the mountains, nor did we tell her about our difficulties during the climbs. Um it was dad who would pick up the call, the midnight calls and listen to all that we had to say about whether, you know, it was a Sherpa being evacuated or how many people uh, lost their lives uh, during that season on the climb. Her mom had, she was, you know, she was completely oblivious to the fact that there is, uh, that the climb is dangerous and uh, there is a lot of uh, uncertainties out there. Um, and, you know, she gave us, uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but our mom gave us three options soon after our high school. Uh, which was um, either climb Everest, get married, or study abroad. <laughs> and we chose the <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the consequence. <laughs> I mean, 
almost those three years where you were convincing your mum, whilst they might have been, you know, frustrating and painful, mm. it almost was kind of, I feel like that's great development for you, for, for you being really sure about your why. Because, you know, a lot of people go, I, I just want to climb Everest. Like I want to do it. It's the biggest. So why not? And having to almost convince and put your position across to the person that loves you the most it enforces a really pure strong desire to do it and I feel like that that probably carried you through in that experience as well yeah you're right you know and and Samantha you'll not believe this but there was a time when uh, the two of us would eat Everest, drink Everest, sleep Everest. Like that had become our mission. And one of the reasons why I also kind of, uh, you know, took uh, Tashi seriously is because she started, uh, you know, having dreams about being on the summit of the peak. And when she recalled that, uh, you know, that episode and, and shared it with me, I was like, you know, this might be something more. It's, it's a deeper calling. And I believe that we all have that calling in our lives. Uh, how quickly are we able to uh, understand it? And go in that direction is is a matter of time, and uh, I'm so grateful that we were able to uh, you know kind of uh, stay very true to our uh, our uh, you know passion and quite literally go in that direction without uh, you know fearing the loss of our life or any any mm. uh, you know challenge in its pursuit. So, I mean, Everest and and climbing, there are inherent dangers. You know, some that you can mitigate, and others that you just can't mitigate and you just have to deal with when you get to them how have you wrestled and come to term with the risks and your own fears with that well I guess you know when you when like I said like when your dreams are bigger than your fears and you know when you know that you want to achieve your goal no matter what I feel like there's this positive drive that helps you overcome those fears and uncertainties because at the end of the day, I think, you know, taking risks is what many people are afraid of. Um, and I think why may majority of the people uh, don't get to accomplish their dreams is because of that fear and the lack of, uh, you know, that confidence. So I would say, like, even going to the mountains for us, we knew that we didn't have to get overconfident with our own desires of climbing Everest, but also learn through the process. Because, you know, I tell people it's the journey that really matters to these climbs. I mean, the summit is a bonus. It's, it's your goal. And when you accomplish it, I can tell you, it's like a feeling that you cannot describe, you know, you feel like on top of the world, but at the, at the same time, you need to realize that, you know, these are all these experiences that are going to make your life, uh, uh, you know, a, a little different. And, uh, Honestly, despite all the fear and uncertainties, I think one advice we keep giving people is to live that dream because uh, many often or so a lot of people don't uh, live up to their dreams. And, you know, there comes a time in life when you start regretting things. It's almost like, oh, I could have done it, but I didn't because I was scared. But how do you know? Because you've never gone out there or challenged yourself. You would never know. So it's really these positive, uh, you know, inspiration that we keep having within our mindset to be able to push through these fears. And really, don't think about the negative always. In your mind, you know that this is what you want and this is exactly what you're going for, despite knowing of the fears and challenges and willing to take that risk. I think you've accomplished your goal. Like, you know, you've... And several, uh, you know, some of the, you know, the traits that are common to success in any other profession... Uh, is you know such as staying focused on the goal, perseverance, uh, meticulous planning, calculated yeah. risk taking, self belief, backed by solid commitment. We apply that equally to mountaineering. 
however you know passionate and successful mountaineers have also to be mentally and physically robust for which the two of us uh, spend a lot of time at home mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, working on like the, like i said earlier meditating and and really mentally being strong about where we are headed uh, we do not tend to rationalize dangers and we <laughs> the two of us uh, but we don't also go you know foolhardily to the mountains hoping to never come back uh we we know the dangers uh but we are also aware of the qualities that are an absolute must for a mountaineer and uh, there is no way that you know we can conquer, conquer these extreme altitudes without the ability to look the danger in the face and move on towards the summit uh we have had to push our body and mind to the limit despite yeah. uh, the unbearable pain and exhaustion amidst potentially dangerous circumstances um and and that's i think what separates great mountaineers from ordinary ones um you know for us that's been a bigger motivation is um really following our passion and, uh, and you know staying really positive about uh, where we are going the negative thoughts are daunting you just want to keep them away <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean i know I, i love all that and i know you you wrote a letter to your parents before you went out there and mark and i actually wrote a letter to Harry before we did the eco challenge oh, not because no. we felt we were going to lose our lives doing it but yeah. we're just aware when we do these things of course there's some hidden risk mm-hmm. and it's just a part of that process of being able to explain why you're doing what you're doing and you know just right. you, know, you leave a little pa- you leave a little piece of you on that piece mm-hmm. of paper in case you know the worst case scenario plays out so i, I completely get it you've got yeah. to live life doing the things that are important for you mm-hmm. but sometimes people don't even know what's important for them if they haven't tried to even test the boundaries at all. Right. And uh, you know I do think that once you start to test the boundaries that is that ripple effect going oh like I I was scared of that but it actually mm-hmm. was amazing and and what could I do now what's been holding me back in other areas. You know what were some of the things that you enjoyed in the preparation phase but mm-hmm. then also what were some of the things that were actually quite challenging to master? Hmm. I would say training was fun. <laughs> like training for Everest was really cool. Like you know, having to be in the best of physical shape and fitness. You know, I I mean, not having a mentor was a little hard in the beginning. But then our father actually, uh, you know, stepped uh on our show, uh, on our shoulder, and he's like, yeah, maybe I should be designing some uh, crazy training programs for the two of you. And I think the training process was interesting because we did everything that we could in order to not fail at our physical tests, you know, like be the best uh, version of ourselves. But honestly, I think training for Everest mentally and physically it's a different thing until unless you've actually uh, gone to the mountain or the base of the mountain. You know what I mean? Like when you, mm. when you think of climbing Everest, you don't really know what Everest is. You're just in your mind. You are kind of like. pumped to do it but until unless you see the mountain yourself you're kind of like oh yeah i want to do it but you're not very sure of how the mountain is going to turn out to be uh for the two of us logistically it was really hard i think one of the most uh, challenging uh, you know aspect of uh, climbing everest was the logistics and looking at our country which is you know still not an outdoor nation it was kind of difficult to like have sponsorships for any of these climbs that we went on i mean starting with everest alone like our dad actually you know gave up his entire literally his entire life savings which is about 60,000 60,000 US dollars um and you know literally we had to like borrow gears from uh, the institutions here in India or like the army uh, the military uh, uh, you know the personnel from uh, India cuz imagine having to wear like you know 
boot number, boot size nine, whereas your feet size is only seven. So logistically, I think we were, uh, you know, we were quite doomed. We didn't have the best of the gears. And I'm telling you, like if anybody saw our gears during our climb, they would have, they would freak out. yeah, they would literally freak out because they didn't understand like, why would we climb with all the equipment that were not even, you know, uh, good enough, or I would say wouldn't qualify for us to climb. So yeah, looking at logistics, it was one of the hardest things, but also financially, it's very tasking. I think mom and dad literally gave up everything for our dream. And that's why we are very grateful for their, uh, you know, contribution to our life because, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, when you look at the finances for Everest, it's not a joke. It's it's pretty expensive. And uh, having, you know, having uh, put dad and mom, uh, their sort of earnings of life into our dream was pretty special. Uh, but then after that, we were broke, of course, because it, it took a lot. It took a lot from them. And, you know, there was a pressure of one kind. Like, you know, we knew that if we didn't climb Everest, it would, it would actually be a bummer because, you know, having invested so much time, effort and money, especially it was kind of like, no, like we didn't have an option to give up. You know what I mean? Like we knew we had to give it the best that we can, because uh, no matter how much you tell yourself that financial do not matter or they don't have to come to you, it does matter. And at one point, Nash and I, we knew of the risks and, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, our parents, the, the support that our parents had put in the line. So, yeah, looking at all that, I think it was not easy. Uh, you know, people just applaud us for reaching the summit of Everest. But That's behind the scenes, it's it's a pretty uh, dark world and uh, not many people want to go through it. Uh, but our dad always made, you know, dad always told us one thing. He's like, Tashanush, you know, when you uh, dream of something and you're really determined to achieve it, you know, the world sort of conspires to make it happen. And I think miracles started happening, you know, we would... Uh, you know, we would receive that support from individuals that we have never met in our lives or, you know, people coming into our lives to help support our mission, which was kind of uh, very heartwarming, like it was beautiful. But at the same time, we knew we know that mom and dad have sacrificed a lot for our mission. And uh, Everest was certainly not easy in that sense, like not just logistically, but, you know, with everything on board, like physically, I think, yeah, mentally, too. I mean, you you all were climbing that mountain in some way, you know, the two of you, but also your parents and your extended family. And it's big. Like, I think it's, I think it is really helpful that you share that part of the story Mm -hmm. because there might be some people looking from the outside going, oh, they just come from a wealthy background. It was just, you know, it was easy for them. That's how it all happened. But I think it, it never is that way. It is so infrequently when I speak to people, there is extreme chosen sacrifice mm-hmm. to make their dreams a reality. And it's not just the sacrifice of the two people who are doing the adventure, it's of the other people. And, mm-hmm. you know, did your parents ever articulate to you why they chose to, you know, give their savings towards this goal for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, uh, you know, dad has been always, uh, you know, the, the person who always asked us to follow up dream our follow-up passion and uh, there was no way he was not going to commit to it himself uh, we, we were at a very impressionable age we were young we were 18 when we dreamt of Everest right it took us three years uh, to kind of uh, go ahead ahead uh, long into the, the, the final summit but uh, for him he was quite aware of the fact that the two of us were not working uh, we were quite dependent on them and I think in India that's uh, it's a little different uh, than the West in the sense that we, you know, we kind of rely on our parents to support us till we finally, you know, got a job of our own or finally stabilized ourselves. So dad knew that his involvement in this process is going to be crucial. 
And had it not been for his support, he knew this would be the end of our dreams. So he just wanted to back his daughter's dreams, and I he wanted to uh, you know also prove that uh, you know when you set your mind and heart into something, then you can make it a reality. And for him, the fact that we even dreamt of Everest was itself uh, a big uh, a big inspiration. He said, "I in my time, I never set a high benchmark." And now here are my two daughters who have uh, set for themselves a much higher benchmark to which I must uh, support uh, with, you know, uh, wholeheartedly and uh, with both arms. So he extended his help uh, throughout the entire process. And even mom, you know, who we uh, don't speak about much, she put her entire gold um, for hold or, you know, for the loan that we had to raise for our summit. So there was a lot at stake. And uh, we're so grateful that they, you know, even uh, saw value in our uh, accomplishment, in our desire to summit the highest peak in the world. And uh, not many parents would understand the value in that. Uh, our parents have always been different. Uh, our dad especially, he's a different breed and we connect with him like none other. So uh, I'm so grateful that he had that uh, bent of mind where he could support our vision and uh, also then, uh, you know, carry on the message that uh, if, uh, daughter, if mothers are uh, daughters are gold, then fathers are, are diamonds and they hold much of the weight of our world. But it, it is correct in, and I could be wrong, so but whilst your parents supported you, well, will support you, um, their daughters or even their sons till they're financially capable, mm-hmm. you know, towards your parents' end of their life, you know, the daughters step in then too and, and will be looking after their parents. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. <laughs> we we truly believe in that ourselves. We've seen it firsthand, mm-hmm. our daughters never these to, uh, you know, amaze their parents and leave their side, even if they grow old and are married off. Uh, it's the daughters who return and then look after their parents. And, um, you know, they, they're, they're, women are very resilient. They are whole, you know, they can, they, they can multitask and um, they're, they're strong. So I, you know, I, we, we've uh, kind of, uh, we are a majority in the family in women, girls. So uh, dad has very little to say in this matter, but uh, I truly <laughs> believe that girls are, uh, to um, look after the parents even when they're married or before they go away. Yeah, I've, I've, I mean, I've seen that through my travels uh, in India and, and to be perfectly honest, it's something that I've thought about a lot um, mm-hmm. through covid uh, the worst hit um, industries and communities in Australia have been those who have been in the aged care facilities, um, right. who are obviously those who are elderly at most at risk of COVID-19. And it's just made me think, you know, no one's going to look after my parents better than I will. Um, right. I Not that I ever thought I'd put my parents in a care facility, <laughs> but it's just made me feel a greater responsibility and a personal desire to to be looking after my parents when they mm-hmm. need that. Oh, that's so wonderful. I, I, yeah, I mean, that's the thing about, uh, you know, and it comes from within. It's not something that has been imposed. I think for us also, there's a natural tendency to, uh, you know, kind of tilt our interest towards our parents, even when we are, uh, you know, uh, doing what we like and probably even in far flung <laughs> Uh, workforces it just makes like for us it's a natural tendency to go back to our parents and be of support to them in whatever way we can because we are mindful and also aware of uh, their upbringing and how much they've put on the line for our growth and uh, it's just a token of love you know you you just want to do something nice for them and if you're capable then why not and you should uh, you should derive happiness from it rather than think it's a it's a liability 
I actually think it's a commonality. I mean, if you if you go back to Fiji where we met, mm-hmm. we both had our parents out there. I had my parents out there and you had your parents out there. Um, and I just I see a lot of similarities in how your parents have been with you and my parents have been with me. And, you know, my parents are very involved <laughs> in my life. <laughs> and with that comes the challenge. But also the older I get, the more I see the beauty of it. I mean, I remember as a kid, I'd be like, I just wish you would stop going through my drawers. <laughs> and, then, and then I got to a point in my, my, in my life where I'm like, oh, there's nothing in my drawers that I really, you know, like you can go and check. There's nothing actually that I want to keep private. Um but the flip side is that like never ending unconditional love and desire for you to succeed. Very true. Let's talk about uh, your well ingrained interest and impact in philanthropy, you know, where it started uh, and how it's evolved over the years. Yeah, well, honestly, I think when like before Nash and I even became mountaineers, you know, we believe that in our life we all have a calling. And despite all the circumstances and odds, we eventually moved towards that calling. You know, we both dreamt of exploring the world and different cultures. And we did dream of uh, being global citizens. But that this journey would start so soon and so suddenly we had actually never thought was possible. You know, both because of our young age and our financial situation uh, actually had ruled out any such possibility. And then suddenly dad got selected for a prestigious assignment and he saw this contact summer program announcement that made us an offer. So the two of us actually uh, enrolled in a course for peace building in, in Vermont um, in the school for international training. Uh, but for us, was it was the need to you know, explore more deeply whether you know, we are cut out of this profession and therefore should we pursue sort of higher studies in, uh, you know, peace building, because that was something we were interested in. I think Nash and I, when we were growing up, you know, we had an interest in UN, the the work that Mm. was carrying out to prevent conflict and, you know, helping parties in conflict make peace. And it was just nice how they were, you know, creating those conditions to allow peace to hold and flourish. So we were pretty intrigued by the work they were doing. And uh, and a part of us always wanted to do that for our community and our society uh, where there had been conflict. You know, and and so when peaceful conflict transformation happened for the two of us, I think it was the most empowering and useful life skill that has been keeping not only us successfully sort of navigate through life's numerous conflicts, but also help others with theirs, you know. And at personal, social and even community levels, it has actually enabled us to play an active and positive role uh, in the conflict dynamic that abound in our daily lives. So I remember like, you know, when I think one thing we always think about is our accomplishments, climbing these high mountains and raising awareness about the ongoing, you know, uh, the ongoing female feticide crime that happens in India. And it was and it was happening for the longest time, though the numbers are now declining uh, because of numerous events and projects that are being held to educate a girl child in India and support a girl child. Uh, But there was, you know, the the worst thing was, I think, so when we came back home after climbing Everest and, uh, you know, we were celebrating this uh, occasion. On the other hand, it was kind of hard to even think about this girl, you know, uh, Jyoti Singh, who was also known as Nirbhaya, who was gang raped in a bus. And to me, I think it hit me hard because I was like, you know, being girls, we have had the opportunity to, you know, discover our passion and our interest and you know show to the world that girls can achieve big dreams and big goals but on the other then you see and hear about such 
you know, horrific crimes and, uh, you know, violence against women. And that absolutely shook the two of us because we could not understand uh, why would somebody, you know, uh, why would somebody commit such a crime? Like, you know, and where is that enabling environment for women and girls in our community where we can thrive and help one another, you know, uh, accomplish our own dreams and aspirations? So it, it honestly was one of the hardest thing. And that's why, that's when Dash and I were like, you know, if ever in life we do something or we do something big, it's not just going to be for the thrill of it. It's, it has to have bigger meaning. It has to have a cause behind it that we absolutely aspire to raise awareness about. And that's when the interest about doing something for women, uh, for women and children sort of came to us. And now that we have our own foundation, the Nungshi Dashi Foundation, we, uh, you know, have these outdoor programs that we are running and we make sure that uh, a part of the, you know, uh, participation is from the girls and the women from our community uh, so that they get an opportunity to discover their own strengths. And I feel, I actually feel blessed to be able to do that because in the recent times too, we have like so many girls and, uh, you know, kids from the villages reach out to us by every means to just, you know, tell us how uh, our journey has been an inspiration to them and that they want to climb their own daily mountains now. And for us, I think we do believe that women usually have a lot of invisible mountains, you know, whether it's of denial or uh, misconduct. And we feel like if you can help somebody overcome that mountain of fear and doubt, you've done your job, you know, and we feel privilege to be able to do that with at least our girls in our community and giving back to them in the way that we can but um, you, you kind of you know you kind of uh, even wonder that you know the things that we hear about uh, women in india you, you for me it's truly been a revelation uh, with all the traveling that we've done that these challenges that we think are uh, nation bound mm. is actually global and uh, there are mm. women who suffer in different magnitude but they do suffer and they do feel prejudiced and they do feel biased by their people and their society and it's not just India but then it's around the world uh, whether it's uh, you know whether you can talk about the pay parity and uh, the violence against women there are so many women countless women who feel that they are underserved in their own community and that they uh, shall be treated differently I don't know how quickly things will change for women in India and for women around the world it seems like uh, you know there's people like there is no proper implementation of law even if there is to secure and safeguard the rights of women uh, you you feel helpless and you feel restless and you feel that they you know that the society isn't doing much but I don't know if there will ever be an end to that maybe not but what we can do is we can change the way women deal with the circumstance in their life rather than becoming a victim of it they need to get stronger and be mindful of what you know what injustices can happen what you know the, the kind of challenges that they may, may encounter with uh, you know the people in their society by men in their society and kind of overcome that and not I would say like when we talk about women empowerment and we talk about women's rights and women's issues people tend to think associate this with man hating it's none of that you know mm -hmm. this is not a war between a man and a woman it's never been nor you know they, they tend to put a man versus women perspective but it's never been about that it's about really uh, making people that men understand that they need to respect women and women to understand that they are even more capable than they think they are. So I think, you know, the, the kind of lesson we pass on to our children is what is crucial for what our society needs to now, you know, take a, a lead on. Uh, the moment 
you see that there is a transition that happens in the mindset of people, whether it's boys and young girls. You will see that they are not, they're not, they don't, they're not born with this thing of injustice or they're not born with this desire to, uh, you know, kill, to rape, to, but it eventually takes place. So for them to change their mindset, we need to start to work early on when they are kids and uh, raise awareness about and educate our young, you know, girls and boys about what is fair and what's not. Um, and that's probably the way forward. But uh, we lack women mentors in our country and uh, we are hoping that there are more women mentors that are now, you know, leading the path for other women to follow and also you know, with their constant guidance there are more women who feel safe and they feel uh, protected and know that they're not alone that there is a sisterhood around the world that is supporting them and with them in all their endeavors do you know that i hear more passion um, when you speak about these issues of female empowerment access to education you know understanding of, of rights than you even do when you're talking about climbing and it's that's so important and it's where I feel so grateful for like you know the world's toughest race and Amazon Prime that they chose to profile your story because it carries the so much greater than just oh there's you know two Indian twins on TV it it those those stories carry through far beyond I'll ever see and you'll ever see and it's really powerful. But it's about the education of, of boys and girls from a young age to have respect for each other, to trust each other. Because when you respect and trust someone from the other gender from a young age, it's hard to conceive that you would do a horrendous crime to them down the track. And also the idea that if a woman is empowered and educated from a young age, even if something does happen to them, they have coping mechanisms to move beyond it. Precisely. Yeah. That's uh, that's actually what uh, you know. We hope to do even with uh, the women within our foundation. We you know we empower them, we educate them. Because you know when you talk about all of these things, it seems easy uh, <laughs> for us to go up on a stage and talk about all the exciting adventures and how you know we've dealt with some of the challenges in our life. But can we really provide the tools and you know coping mechanisms to these women to kind of you know imply that in their own life? Are we able to pass on something better that they feel stronger and more powerful and also realize that they that they have a voice and that they will be heard and that there are people with them backing them throughout their journeys? I think that that camaraderie, that uh, sense of sisterhood, that sense of belonging is sometimes what these women crave for. I truly believe that people are craving a sense of belonging, um, whether it's in the good times or the bad times, but most certainly in times of uncertainty and in, you know, trauma, people need to feel like they belong to something. And the two of you have experienced that through your twinship, um, I guess, in a really powerful way, which makes you quite... Um, I guess, powerful voices in that space. Uh, as I said earlier, I, I am really fascinated about that dynamic and relationship of being part of a twin. Would you mind um, sharing a little bit about your experiences? Ah, we guys have uh, quite a few similarities and uh, differences. Uh, obviously, when it comes to our pursuits, uh, adventure pursuits, the two of us say, seem to be sharing the same interest. Uh, but in terms of personality, we are literally the yin and yang. Uh, very, very different. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I should just say that the two of us are like inseparable, to be honest. Like 
since childhood, you know, we have attended the same schools, like completed the bachelor's degree in journalism together. And we have received like certifications, uh, you know, in peace building or elsewhere, uh, you know, together. So I would say that we share the same passion, let's say, for dancing, music, athletics. And, you know, literally, Samantha, without even communicating, like I would say telepathically, like we finish each other's sentences. Um, and it's crazy, as cliche as it may sound, but like, the mountains cast a spell on both of us and I feel like the dangerous climbs and adventures we've been on together has actually bonded us in a lot of ways um and you know like we now realize that bonds that are built sharing the most dangerous moments together are the strongest and people who haven't experienced such a thing they would never understand but now we understand you know what this uh, whole twinship is all about and it's such a huge synergy, not just in life, but like I said, in mountaineering as well, where you know you have somebody you can count on, you know. So, yeah, the trust we have and the bond we share has gotten us this far. And at times when I'm giving up, you know, my sister Nash acts like my left hand and helps me cope. Happy but I can tell you, one of us is uh, bossy, the other one is quiet, <laughs> one of us is uh, social, one of us is not, one of us is an introvert, the other one is an extrovert without uh, giving out any details. But... Uh, <laughs> We feel like we're always, like we are dating, the two of us. We've been together 24-7 oh for yeah. 29 years now. So. I mean, just the other day, um, yeah. Mark went downstairs to do some work and I was like, oh, no, but I'll miss you. And then he looked at me and he goes, I have never spent so much time with someone in my life. <laughs> and it made me think of you two because yeah. you are literally with each other all the time. I mean, do you share a bedroom? Yes, yeah. 24-7, man. We share our two No, we don't. <laughs> that was a bit too much. <laughs> no, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm all for the openness. Um, wow. I mean, it's just, which is probably why sometimes you like bicker at each other because like the tolerance levels are so removed. Oh, for sure. I think it's time, it's high time that we kind of, uh, you know, spend time away from each other because uh, it, it also allows, you know, for growth and, for growth and you know, your personal identity and it just is different so I just hope eventually we kind of have you know the time and moment and space to kind of experience that for ourselves it's almost like dad you know can you take this girl out of my life and then the next time it's like can you bring her back in like oh my gosh this is like yeah <laughs> it's a drama <laughs> I mean, that'll be the constant um, journey of your life. The probably, Do you feel sometimes there's this, like, pull to be your own person, but then you can't defy what feels most natural? Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, looking at what we have sort of accomplished together, there's always this identity of, you know, the two of us having done it. Um, and so people, you know, whenever I go to, like, let's say forums alone or if I'm going for a meeting alone, you know, it's kind of like we're, like, it's not complete, like the whole energy and, and the, you know, uh, the vibe is not right. I feel like, you know, because we've done so much together and we've become a brand, like as a twin, uh, it's easier to reflect that to our work. But having said that, I mean, you know, there were times when, you know, when we were outside, like Nash was in New York for a while, I was in California for a while. That was the first time we actually, uh, you know, uh, moved away from each other for a month and two. And I know there were times we'd call each other like every second. And then it became to a few minutes and then hours and then days. Yeah. But now I think the desire to uh, kind of also, you know, spend time away from each other, make our own friendships, you know, carry that life ahead in a sense that we are responsible for our own life and move from that objective of we to I. 
Whereas a lot of people now try to do I to B. For us, it's always been we. And wherever I go, no matter where I am, I can never say the word I like the way I just did. It's always <laughs> we. And it's funny because people are like, why do you always say we? And I was like, ah, I've got a twin. And then and the whole description <laughs> follows. But uh, so most certainly this will be, uh, this is where we do need people to guide us, to mentor us, uh, to kind of lead our lives separately because it's going to be a challenge in the yeah. future. Uh, considering what all we want to do with our lives eventually. And, you know, to, to have a guy in our life also becomes so much easier when you kind of uh, allow each other that space with, and again, not ignoring the interest of the other person, but just moving away uh, in, in, a beautiful, in a beautiful spirit. And for us, that's been a challenge and it's, it's going to be a challenge in coming years. But we hope that with people around us, we do receive, you know, all of their guidance in how we uh, take life from now on, you know, with, with the challenges that we're facing currently. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. And if you're not a twin, it is so hard to relate to it. But what I can say is yeah. I love you as a we and I love you as an I. So, you know, you're a force for good together, but also independently yeah. you can craft, you know, your own identity and the things that you choose to do. It's just, you know, it's when you start to feel comfortable with it. And obviously, you know, Nash, when you went to New York, you got a guy. So that was why you were easily distracted there. <laughs> <laughs> I was. But I just want to mention, like, the whole, you know, carving your identity as an individual really plays out for us beautifully because it's definitely been a challenge and we often brainstorm and, talk about you know some of these things that we would like to do in the future and again it boils down to how comfortable we are with uh, you know moving away from that identity because sometimes you do have to let go of one thing to be able to create the other and uh, in that bargain you might be you might succeed or you might fail but the point is you go into it 100 percent and i just want that to kind of play out beautifully for the two of us no matter what we choose to do with our life yeah, I mean, do you speak do you speak to other twins about this kind of challenge? Strangely, the twins that we've been in touch with, uh, and they are also adventurers and explorers. From Is this the Turner twins? Yeah, yeah, twins. thought so. But for them, they've never spent time like this ever. Like they've never been twenty four seven in the same room or the same place, or you know, they've all, they've had fair share of their you know time away from each other, which is why they they have developed a very different understanding of the whole twinship and moving on but for us we uh, we are looking for somebody who's always been together and has uh, and eventually either been together because they realize that there's more synergy in that and more contentness but if people have moved out then what like what was the path for them like so we can emulate part of it the process and get somewhere close we may not entirely achieve the goal but at least mm -hmm. the idea is to understand from people as much as we can in their own experience of life how, like, what did they do to kind of create that space and how did they move on and how easy or difficult it was. We've never come across uh, twins, unfortunately, yet in our a circle of friends who have spent time together. Oh, there actually was another set of twins at, at Fiji, an eco-challenge. It was Elizabeth and Bern Dornham. They were a part of Team Thunderbolt. And, yeah, they're identical twins. Uh, they adventure race together. They live together. Uh, I heard that they have purchased the same vehicle. So they, I think they epitomise a very a similar lifestyle to the two of you. So it would be good to connect the two of you up. Like what? Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's such a shame that you guys didn't get an opportunity to chat to each other. But, okay. you know, and and I could be wrong in this questioning, but hmm. is it do you, a part of you feel that you're not whole when you're by yourself? <laughs> yeah, I guess 
Oh, like, <laughs> you know, I think when you talk of presence and, you know, when you're like somewhere by yourself and there's, I think it's just a part of friendship. Like, I think we're just born with this whole, you know, like you are going to miss your twin regardless of like actually missing her, you know, uh, consciously. Like, it's almost like you're, you're speaking a language and you kind of think that your twin is speaking the same language at the same time and she's probably thinking about the same thing. Uh, so... Unconsciously, I mean, I would say that when you're, when I'm like anywhere or when I'm thinking about Nash, it's almost like, you know, I have a twin, like it's, it's a thing. So I am always uh, mindful and conscious of the fact that I have a twin. And uh, it's funny because like, let's say you're experiencing a great moment in your life yeah. when your twin is not there. You're like, I wish my twin was here to experience the same thing. Exactly. Because yeah. she would have loved mm-hmm. it. And so even though they're like, even though we lead our lives the way we do and we are you know, ignoring each other for the period that we want to deliberately, uh, there are moments that kind of remind you of how important, uh, you know, that that uh, sharing of space is with each other. And you miss that sometimes. You're like, I wish you were here and I wish you could see this yeah. moment and feel this moment with me and experience this moment like I felt like with me. And so uh, mm-hmm. that will always, uh, I think, even uh, going uh, forward from here, like even if we end up in different places eventually, I think there will be a part of it that keeps reminding us of what we're missing and that your time is so There is a feeling of incompleteness when your twin is not there. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've never heard the two of you talk about that. And I think that story of the, the we to the I, when you are right, so many people are thinking of it in the reverse, is going to be an interesting journey for you. And you know, I look forward to keeping in touch to see how it goes. We'll talk about two incredibly talented and also charismatic twins. You know, um, if you want to follow these ladies, uh, you can follow them at team underscore kukuri underscore warriors. Uh, Not only are they sharing the behind the scenes of their experiences at the world's toughest race, but also their upcoming adventures, which there will be plenty of them. Now, this conversation was not only with people who defy the odds, but this conversation also got to you by defying the odds uh, with all the storms that we had at play and the, the multiple recordings that we had. So it reminded me of the early days of this podcast journey where I sometimes had to record in the car because there was no reception. And you know what? That is an adventurer's mindset where you make things happen and you become innovative and resourceful to get it across. So thank you for the patience uh, and that, that this was a little bit delayed. And most importantly, I hope you guys are happy, safe and well wherever you are in the world. Sending love from me to you from the Dunning Rangers. <laughs>